because everybody loves their dog. They want their dog to be happy. listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 86 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. Happy 2024. So you might have noticed that I'm doing something a little bit different today, and I'm actually pulling out an episode from the archives. So I will admit, (laughs) my husband and I had kind of a rough holiday season. Uh, I don't know if I had mentioned, but we had a death in my husband's family, and then we ended up both getting sick, and it was just kind of a rough holiday season. (laughs) We have this new crazy dog at our house, and I just kind of needed to take an extra couple weeks off, to be honest. So I thought I would pull out one of my favorite episodes from the early days of the Believe in Dog podcast. And I am going to play for you today the episode that I recorded at the beginning of 2020. This was the last episode I released before COVID hit, if you can believe it. And it is with the amazing dog trainer, Dr. Zazie Todd. She is a psychologist turned dog trainer. And four years ago, she wrote a book called WAG, The Science of Making Your Dog Happy. And it's one of those books that I look at frequently. It might not be a book that you sit down and read cover to cover, but it is one of those books that I'm always looking things out, especially with bringing this new dog in the house. It is such a great, you know, reference book to have. Keep it around on the coffee table, even if the clutter drives your husband crazy. And in the last couple years, Dr. Zazie Todd has also put out a book called Purr, The Science of Making Your Cat Happy. So if you're a cat person too, you can check out that book as well. So I left in my original introduction and outro segment, and I don't want to take up any more of your time for today, but I will be back in two weeks with an amazing new episode that I think you're going to be super excited to hear because I am super excited about airing it. And we're now going to get started with my original episode with Dr. Zazie Todd from all the way back in the pre-pandemic days. And please be kind and patient to new podcaster Erin. Welcome to episode nine of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm so excited to share with you today my conversation with Zazie Todd, whose blog can be found at companionanimalpsychology.com, and also the author of WAG, The Science of Making Your Dog Happy, which you can get on Amazon or in your bookstore as of Tuesday, March 10th. I was so fortunate to receive an advanced copy of the book so that I could be familiar with it when I spoke with her for our interview, and I freaking love this book. I have a few dog books that I have read over the years that I go back to over and over again, but this is one that I am just always going to keep on the coffee table, even if it drives my husband crazy that there's too much clutter, (laughs) because this book covers everything from 
selecting your dog until making your final decisions for your dog. It covers sleep, enrichment, food, games, children, special needs, anything that you could possibly imagine she has covered in this book. And by covered in this book, I mean she has done all the research, put it in an easy-to-read format, and then given you a list at the end of each chapter of all the takeaways of how you can integrate these tips into your life. And at the end of the book, there is a three-page checklist on making your dog happy, where you can go through and check off all the things that you're doing right and be glad to know that you're doing them because science. And some food for thought if there's things that you aren't doing, which I found helpful too. I think so many of us want to make sure that we're doing the best thing that we can for our dog. We want to make sure our dog is as happy to be with us as we are to be with them. And I also thought it would be a wonderful resource for anyone who is in the pet services industry. If you're a dog trainer, have a dog sitting or dog walking business, if you have clients that are coming to you with problems or questions in their household, this is such an amazing resource. Tell all your clients to get this book, carry it in your back pocket. This is just going to be a wonderful resource for everyone. It's not just opinion or theories, but that are actually research-based in science with all the references that you can go up and confirm if you're so inclined. Plus, dog owners of any stage of life, you will find something in this book that will help you or help give you clarity or help give you confidence and make you feel more comfortable and confident in your decision-making for your dog. Zazie is so generous with the information she shares with us during our interview. Zazie and I talk about how her dogs Ghost and Bodger had joined her family and the behavior issues that they had that led to her looking to the scientific literature and using her psychology background to make sure that she was making the right decisions for her dogs. We talk about what motivated her to start the Companion Animal Psychology blog to share the latest canine science and feline science research and all the new things that we're learning about dogs. We talk about her experience with Jean Donaldson's Academy for Dog Trainers, and we talk about how to find the right information for training your dog. We talk about what a sniffari is, and Zazie shares some other nuggets of information with us from the book. We even talk about training cats and her work with shelter dogs. Zazie tells us about the importance of selecting the right dog for your family and for your lifestyle. Zazie shares with us what her number one training challenge was as a dog owner, And we talk about the idea of fear-free and what this means for vet care and for trainers. And then we talk about the end-of-life care because, unfortunately, both of Zazie's dogs, Ghost and now Badger, have passed away. Badger very recently in February. But their inspiration and impact will always live on through all the lives that will be made better through the work in this book. So let's get started. I am so honored today to be here with Zazie Todd of the Companion Animal Psychology Center. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. I am so excited for your book, WAG, The Science of Making Your Dog Happy, which will be coming out on March 10th. And I have so many questions to ask you about it. I'm I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. And thank you for giving me the chance to talk about WAG. So I'm always really interested in how people came into being a dog person. So for me, um, I actually was sort of a reluctant dog owner at my husband's um, behest when I was 25. And then it took over my whole world. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So were you someone that had pets growing up? Has that always been a part of your life? 
No, I wasn't allowed any pets growing up. I would have actually really loved a cat. I was desperate for a cat when I was a child, but it wasn't possible. And I didn't used to be a dog person. I actually used to be terrified of dogs as a child because I had some bad experiences. Um, And then I got over that and not only got over that but really fell in love with dogs and for a long time I wanted a dog but I I couldn't have one because I was at work too much and I had to travel for work and my husband had to travel for work and it just wasn't the right kind of lifestyle for a dog so we had to wait a while and then when uh, we moved here in in Maple Ridge where I live now in BC uh, all of a sudden it was the right time to have a dog and that was so exciting and we adopted Ghost first of all who was a Siberian Husky Alaska Malamute Cross and within a very short time of having him it was very apparent that he really loved other dogs and so we thought he needed a friend so within six weeks of getting him we adopted Bodger uh, who was an Australian Shepherd oh wow absolutely wonderful dog and then my background is in psychology which um, mainly my background was social psychology but I have done some animal behavior stuff and so on. And I kept reading things about dogs that I wasn't really very sure about or I was a bit confused and surprised by. And so I turned to the scientific literature um, to see what I could find. And I thought it was really fascinating. Canine science was taking off, uh, feline science to some extent, but not as much. So I started writing my blog, first of all, Companion Animal Psychology. And then from that, I came to write my book, Wag, The Science of Making Your Dog Happy. So did you have any specific behavior issues with your dogs that led you to start looking uh, into this? Or were you just curious, trying to do everything right, you know, the right way? We were just trying to do things right for them and uh, wanting to make them happy. But But Ghost was a little fearful of us and our hands when he first came to live with us. If I reached out towards him, then he would shy away. So I tried not to do that. He loved to be petted when he knew for sure that was what was going to be happening. But otherwise, like if you just reached towards him, he'd be like, oh, keep away. Um, And he was afraid. So that took about six months to go away. And Bodger was... Uh, Well, I usually just say he was nuts. (laughs) (laughs) He was very jumpy and mouthy. He he hadn't been taught anything before. Whoever had him before had not taught him a thing. Um, He didn't know how to walk on leash. I think he must have been quite bored in his previous life because he used to spin in circles, but that went away, fortunately, when he was living with us. And so I was quite motivated to find out more about dogs and and what we could do to make them feel more comfortable and, and happier. And so you actually ended up going through the Academy of Dog Trainers, is that right? That's right. I'm an honours graduate of the Academy for Dog Trainers, and that was a wonderful experience. It's a very special place to study dog training, and it focuses on dog behaviour, behaviour problems, as well as basic obedience training. So it's it's a very excellent education in dogs, and that, that was a real pleasure to do that and to study there. Were you ever interested in that outside of having pets or do you think just having the pets is really what what, uh, put you in that direction? There was a time when I was working as a psychologist when I thought it would be really interesting to do some work on pets and I actually had a few students do projects on things related to people's relationship with their pets Um, but I never did anything more with it and I never took it any further and obviously it's it's kind of funny that that's what I've, I've ended up 
doing now, but it, to me, it feels like everything has come together at the right time in order to be focusing on this. So I feel like all the psychology I've done in the past is, is very relevant to, to writing about dogs and to working with dogs and people. So it's, it's just, it feels nice that it's come together like that. So how long have you been working on writing the book? Uh, many years. <laughs> so a book takes a long time because you start off with a book proposal and that's what you send to your publisher and that outlines what the book will be about, what all the chapters are, who's going to be interested in it. And then it was April 2017 when I handed the manuscript in to my publisher, I think. No, 2018. So yeah, three years, I guess, since I got the contract to it, it becoming a published book. Um, so it's been it's been a little while waiting. I've been getting a little bit impatient and I'm going to be very happy for it to be published. I can imagine. How long did you have the idea to start writing the book? Because I, I see that you have so many, I love, I love how the book's laid out. I love the chapters. Um, I, and you really cover everything from, you know, getting a dog all the way through. How do we know when it's, you know, time to say goodbye to our, to our dogs? And I was, I was just curious, like, did you one day realize, oh, I have all of this, this research and, and I want to do this with it? Or did you set out to say, I want to write a book and now I'm going to do the research? <laughs> Well, I've been writing my blog, Companion Animal Psychology, since 2012. Um, and I, I think the idea for the book ultimately came from writing my blog. And I've, I've got some posts on my blog about things that will make dogs happy that I, I in the end, stopped writing. I thought this needs to be a book, not a set of blog posts. Um, so really, it came from there. And, and I've been working on it a long time. But of course, because I've been writing my blog for so long, some of the research was already done in the course of writing about studies for my blog. Because on my blog, every, every week or sometimes twice a week, I have a story about dogs, dog behavior, dog training, or sometimes cats, and interesting new scientific research that I've seen that I think people would like to hear about. Um, and so all of that really has been able to go into my book, which is is uh, very helpful. So in from that point of view, in a way, I've been doing the research from it it's just for eight years. It's just that for the beginning of that time, I didn't know it was going to turn into a book. Right. So what had prompted you to start the blog? Really just because I wanted to learn more for myself about what scientists were finding out about dogs and cats. And I thought it was really fun to write about it. And when I started, I honestly did not know if I was going to keep it going. I just thought I'll try it and see. But people seemed to like it and to enjoy it. And um, I certainly found it very interesting. I, I like writing it myself. So I kept it going. And that's ultimately what's become this book. And of course, I'm still blogging regularly. Um, and it's fun. There's so many interesting things that that we're learning about dogs that we didn't used to know before. So it's it's really nice. And I think for ordinary dog owners, it, it's just interesting and cool to find out more about dogs. Everybody loves their dog. They want their dog to be happy. So that means they want to learn a lot about them. Absolutely. That's how I found you was through your blog. Um, we have a dog named Nino who uh, is one of the kind of fearful guys that he definitely uh, used to cower when, you know, he would see your hand coming at him. I definitely relate with that. And uh, I think it was when we uh, first adopted him that I ended up finding about your blog and, and it's been very helpful just in, you know, working with him and, and make, kind of making sure that we're doing the right thing. And it's really interesting with dog training. I've heard 
there's so many different methodologies and, and theories and uh, tools and, and whatnot. And, and some of it seems very old school. <laughs> and I'm not always sure where some of these concepts, you know, came from because uh, they were not, you know, research based since all of that is, is so new. And I, I was curious if if that if you had found any of this information or how do you tell help people find you know kind of like the right information uh f- you know for training their dog yeah and it's a really important point that you bring up because there is so much information out there but some of it is not very accurate um there was a study by uh, Dr. Claire Brown from New Zealand, looking at the information in dog training books. And she looked at five popular dog training books that have been popular for years and years and years. And she looked to see, first of all, did they have the kinds of information that scientists think people should know about dog training? And second, was it accurate? Um, and most of the books did not actually come out very well from that. They either had gaps in the information that they were presenting or some of them actually had errors or were recommending outdated methods of working with your dog. So I think it's really difficult for the general public when they look and they get completely different messages from from different sources. And I have a post on my blog about how to choose a dog trainer, which gives some advice on the kinds of things that you look for. But the main thing that I like to tell people is look for a dog trainer who's going to use food to train your dog. Uh, And if you're training yourself, use food to train your dog because food as positive reinforcement is very effective. It works really well. It doesn't have the risks that some of the aversive training methods have um, of causing anxiety and stress. Plus, it's fun for your dog. Like they're happy if they're going to get a nice treat for doing the right behavior. So that makes it more fun for you, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just, uh, you know, with just simple things around you know, around the house, like I I always call them like manners, you know, like we, we have a rule about where you have to wait while I get the food together. The dogs aren't allowed to just run through the kitchen while I'm getting their food together. And, and just how, you know, food is just such a great motivator for them, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And, and when we use food to train dogs to, as you say, to have manners, it makes life easier for all of us. It's easier for them because they know what they're meant to do and they know that they're going to get rewarded for it. And it's easier for us because we've taught the dog the kinds of skills and behaviors that we want them to have in order to live a a happy and an easy life with us. So it's really important. One of the things that I find really fascinating was a study that looked at the kinds of food that people use to train their dog. So there was a study that looked at how fast dogs would run for either a piece of sausage or a piece of kibble <laughs> and the dog the dog knew what they were running towards they'd been trained so that the color of the bowl indicated what would be in it and dogs run faster for a piece of sausage compared to a piece of kibble and I thought that was really a neat study and also so relevant for everyday life because it means that if you're out there practicing getting your dog to come when called you know that you need to have good food rather than just a piece of kibble and your dog is going to respond better (laughs) right I I thought that was a good tip that you had in the book was to find out what the best motivator for your dog was you know yeah is it the sausage is it the chicken you know is it the you know deer jerky you know what is it that'll that'll get them to do what you want to do yeah and it can be surprising so cheese for example works really well with with most dogs but I have known a dog spit out a piece of cheese (laughs) So you never know. You have to find out what works for your individual dog. Yeah, I thought that was that was such a great point. 
you know, I, there were so many neat things that I enjoyed about the book. And, you know, we always hear that dogs have such a strong sense of smell, right? Like we, we hear these things in the news sometimes that dogs can, you know, sniff out cancer. And we know about uh, bomb sniffing uh, dogs or drug sniffing dogs. And I thought there was a really interesting point about how, you know, it's hard for us as humans because we're so visually oriented, but with dogs, their sense of smell comes first. And then they actually ask their eyes to like kind of confirm or deny what they're smelling. <laughs> and mm. I just thought that was such an interesting perspective, uh, you know, for us to keep in mind. Yes, absolutely. And I love that I was able to include a quote from Dr. Alexandra Horowitz on the importance of smell to dogs in the book as, as one of the experts' tips for the main thing that will make a difference to dogs. So smell is really important. And one of the lovely things we can do in everyday life is to take them on a sniffari when we go on a leash walk and just let the dog follow their nose instead of us trying to hurry the dog along or, or get the route done in a certain time or go in a particular direction. Just let the dog follow their nose where, so long as it's safe, wherever that takes them and give them as long to sniff as, as they would like. And it's really nice for dogs. It's a really enriching activity because smell is so important to them. Even if we're doing the same walk from our perspective every day, from their perspective, of course, it's going to smell different from all the different animals that have been by. They'll smell which dogs have been by that day that or which dogs they're used to smelling, everything else that's going on. And it's really nice for them. Yes, I loved the term sniffari. I just thought that was such a great term. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I didn't come up with it, but I, I really love that word too, because it, it really conveys this idea of it being like a safari of smells. Right. And it's good for, even for older dogs. Um, maybe older dogs can't walk as far as they used to or as fast as they used to but you can let them sniff away and they can still enjoy their walks just as much and that's something that I used to do with Ghost when he was getting older and a bit more infirm and he couldn't walk as far but he liked to sniff every blade of grass it felt like (laughs) so the walks were very slow but he had a lovely time because he could just sniff everything to his heart's content. Yes, I uh, I remember doing that with our girls as as they got older too, our our, our previous dogs, and, and my husband would say, I I think she sniffed every blade of grass on our street. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the other things that I really enjoyed about the book was not only are you giving us the science, but you're also giving us ways that we can apply this into our life and how we can really integrate this into our home life. So it's not just, oh, it's a science book. It's like, no, this is how you can make it work with your dogs. And I I just really loved how you did that. Thank you very much. I wanted to make the book very practical. So every chapter explains what science tells us about dogs and then at the end of the chapter there's a list of tips to apply it at home so that makes it easier for people to see what they can do with their dog and I'm sure people will find things that they are already doing and they can be pleased that they're already doing them and I'm sure that they'll also find some things that are perhaps a bit new that they might like to give a try and those are set out very clearly at the end of each chapter and then right at the end of the book there's a checklist for a happy dog which people can also go through if they like which summarizes some of the main things that you can be doing to help to ensure that your dog is happy. 
Yes, I loved the checklist and I and I love books. Uh, <laughs> um, my husband, my husband is very OCD. And so he ha- always has to read something like from, you know, cover to cover, you know, in order, but I love to jump around. <laughs> and um, when possible, and you know, because we have we have a fearful guy on our hands, I was like, Oh, let me read about this. And you know, and I end up reading the whole book probably three times, but I just don't do it in like, one to 10 chronological order, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's really nice. Well, I think the way it's set out also, because it has the quotes from people as well as all the tips, I think it's quite easy to jump around if that's the way that you prefer to read or if you just want to go back and check something. So hopefully people will enjoy that about it. And yes, and I love I loved the checklist. And yes, I loved being able to, you know, check off all the things that we were doing right. <laughs> Yay, that's brilliant. <laughs> Well, I think that's that's really nice. And it's important to say it's not about being perfect because no one's perfect and our dogs aren't perfect, even though we'd like to pretend that they are. No <laughs> one's perfect. And so no one can be doing everything absolutely right. But I think everyone will find there are lots of things that they are already doing right and can give themselves a big pat on the back for, which is very nice. Yes, yes, I I love that. So one of the other things I thought was interesting is you've actually done some work around cat training. Is that correct? I've written about cat training on my blog. Yes, um, it's. I think cat, cat training is kind of becoming or going to become uh, a much bigger thing because it's really helpful. First of all, to be able to train cats to do things that they need to do in everyday life, and and a big one there would be the training them to use the cat carrier. And the other thing is just simply tricks training. Um, you can train your cat tricks, and it's a good form of enrichment for them. And uh, somewhere on my blog, I think there's a picture of my cat, Melina, showing off one of her tricks, um, which I had to train her because I, I did a course with International Cat Care on feline behavior. And that was one of the assignments for that course was to train your cat something. Oh, okay. But I think for everyone, almost everyone has had that experience of trying to force their cat into the carrier at the last minute before you go to the vet and the cat wants to run away and hide and they put their their legs out so to try and prevent you from putting them in and it's horrible and it doesn't have to be like that you can actually train your cat to like their carrier but if it's an adult cat you have to do it quite slowly because they have prior experience of not liking what happens when they go in it it's much much easier if you start with a kitten but even older cats you can train them to like it and it's such a big difference when you can just easily put your cat in the carrier and take them to the vet because they have to go some of the time and sometimes people don't take them because it's too difficult and too stressful it's much better when we can make it easier for them I I've never had a cat because we've always had dogs that have had rather a high drive and so Mm. that was such a new idea to me and I I mean obviously it makes sense in the sense of like a cat care but even the idea of doing tricks that's so that's so interesting to me. I think a lot of dog trainers like that idea because you can basically take the same kinds of training plans there might be a bit of a difference but but basically you can apply the same thing to cats. But with cats, generally, you're going to want to have much shorter training sessions. And if they are bored and want to wander off, they're just going to do that. They're not going to hang around near you <laughs> if, you're, if you're not motivating them. And then the other thing is that the rewards need to be quite small because cats are obviously quite small themselves. So only really tiny, tiny rewards like the treats that you get in a cat packet of cat treats are too big really you would need to cut them into bits or use tiny bits of tuna or tiny tiny bits of shrimp 
or some cats will actually work to be brushed. One of my cats likes to be brushed a lot, and so he will work in order to be brushed. Um, and that's quite sweet, really. <laughs> yeah, we realized that we sort of accidentally taught our dog to go outside at night because one of our dogs does not like to go outside once she's comfortable. And so we would start giving them a treat when they came in. But then our other dog quickly realized that, oh, every 15 minutes, he's just going to act like he has to go outside. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and we were like, oh, oops, that's our fault. <laughs> yeah, dogs are very clever. Um, they notice what what brings them the treats? Basically, they do what works. And if it's going to work to give them a treat, then then they will do it. And I think that's one of the great things about living with a dog, though, is that we learn so much from it. Yeah. And sometimes we learn that we didn't think that through very well. <laughs> You've actually spent a lot of time working with shelter dogs, too. Is that right? Yes, I, I volunteer at my local shelter uh, with both the dogs and the cats. And I love it, actually. It's it's uh, different every week and I've learned a lot from it and their animals come from a wide range of different backgrounds. So some people think animals only end up in shelters when they have behavior problems and that's not the case at all. Um, they can end up there for all kinds of reasons. They might come from uh, someone who had to go into hospital or, or who passed away or who had to move house and the new housing didn't have space for them. Or in some cases, they might actually come from cruelty cases and have been seized. So the animals come from a wide range of backgrounds and it feels like a real privilege to be able to work with them and spend some time with them. And I've, I've learned a lot from it and it's very rewarding. If you have a shelter near you, I, it's definitely something that I would recommend. And there are all kinds of things that you can do. So in my case, I, mainly do behavior and training type things but there's also a need for people to walk dogs and take pets to the vet and so on or even to do admin and fundraising so it's a good way to learn some extra skills too I think it, it's it it's a good thing that benefits the animals but it's also like it's good for me personally I feel like I've gained a lot from it Absolutely. I think that's wonderful. And how how fortunate are they to have you on their on their uh, volunteer team? Thank you. <laughs> Is there any common problems that you see or what are the most common things that you hear about from from people or even that you see, you know, like in a shelter population? Are there any themes? There's actually been some really interesting research on how people feel about pets that they've adopted from shelters. And what's really nice is that it paints a very positive picture that on the whole, people are very happy when they bring home a dog from a shelter. And this is from several different studies that have found this. And the kinds of issues that tend to be fairly common, maybe house training issues, maybe jumping up and jumping up. You, it's usually fairly easy to solve. They're not like big issues. People don't come and say, oh, we've got big issues and we wish we hadn't adopted them. Usually people are really happy with the pet that, that they've brought home. And I think that's a really nice thing and it's a really positive thing. But interestingly, also the research shows that when people have had some kind of contact with a shelter, they're actually more likely to have a positive attitude to adopting from a shelter. So you would expect volunteers to, to feel more positive about adopting from a shelter, but that kind of contact is actually quite helpful in, in giving people the idea that actually these, they're just normal pets that need, that happen to need homes. And the good news is that it, it works out really well most of the time. Yes. We've, uh, we're big, big, uh, shelter dog fans over here. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly, you know, I'm in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and so we have tons of, 
you know, the blacky headed, broad chested dogs that may or may not be considered a pit bull, depending on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it really varies. It seems to vary depending on whereabouts you are geographically, what kind of what kind of dog or what kind of cat they tend to have in the shelter. And I think in some places, that kind of dog is there quite often and in other kinds of places that kind of dog gets adopted really quickly because it's it's the kind of dog that people want so uh, there's a lot of variability in in what you might find and another thing that some people aren't aware of is that you can sometimes still find pedigree dogs in shelters and that maybe has surprised me over the years some of the dogs that have come in because you would expect with a pedigree that they would go back to the breeder but occasionally that doesn't happen so for one reason or another right Right. And even like there's even rescues, you know, if people are looking for a specific breed and. Yeah. And then there are breed specific rescues that you can, can look at. So obviously Ghost and Bodger both were adopted as, as adult dogs and, and I'm the kind of person who would do that again, I think. Uh, I've never actually had a puppy. I love puppies, but they're a lot of work. <laughs> That's what I always say too. <laughs> <laughs> I like to hang out with them for a bit, but they are a lot of work to begin with. And then get and on I, back. <laughs> yeah, and and I think people aren't always aware of that. And um, one thing that, that we do know, whether people are getting a puppy or getting a shelter dog, actually a lot of people don't do much research before they get one. They just have the idea that they want to go out and, and get a dog or a puppy. And I think it really helps us if we do actually do some research beforehand so that we know a bit more about what to expect and how to help a, a dog or a puppy feel comfortable in our homes. Right. You know, sometimes, unfortunately, you hear people who want a dog because of a, a certain look uh, and, and they aren't maybe necessarily familiar with the characteristics of, of that breed that has, you know, two different color eyes or the, you know, pattern of that fur or something. And, um, and then, yeah, it becomes a real, a real mismatch for everyone involved. <laughs> Yeah, it's so often it is the looks that attract people to a dog, but the, the questions we need to ask ourselves are to do with what kind of lifestyle we have and what kind of dog is going to fit in that lifestyle. So if uh, if you're very active and go on lots of hikes and so on, or want a dog to do agility with or something, then obviously you need a dog that's going to be very active. But some of us are more like couch potatoes, and then you need more of a couch potato kind of a dog. Right, because, right. you know, you, you need to give them the kind of lifestyle they need in order to look after them properly. Oh, one other thing that was very interesting, and I have just started hearing this term maybe in the last um, year or two, is fear-free. And our veterinarian uh, has that designation. Fantastic. I believe that you have that training also. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, I am a fear-free certified trainer and fear-free is, I think the phrase they use is taking the pet out of petrified. It's about helping dogs and cats not to be stressed at the vet. So using low stress handling techniques, setting up the clinic to make it so that animals will be more comfortable and using a considerate approach to help with caring for the animals and even thinking about whether something has to be done or if it's optional and you could maybe train the animal or in some cases vets will decide that they need to use sedation and obviously I'm not a vet so I can't speak from the veterinarian's point of view but for myself I had the experience when we adopted Bodger and I mentioned this in the book he was terrified of going to the vet he really really hated it Um, and 
because Ghost was often ill, we asked Abbott if it was all right to always bring Bodger to, and we took Bodger along to all of Ghost consultations. And nothing happened to Bodger apart from the fact that he was given treats. And we took him also a few times just to sit in the waiting room and have treats. And I had to do a lot of work on body handling with him. And I have to say a special thank you to Jean Donaldson of the Academy for Dog Trainers because she helped me develop a special plan for being able to look in Bodger's mouth, which he was not having any of at all. <laughs> that was that was a real training challenge for me, getting him accustomed to the things that go with a vet exam. And it was so worth it because he began to actually like going to the vet. And it makes such a difference because it's stressful for you as an owner when your dog is really stressed. And when your dog is actually quite happy being there, it's so much more relaxing. It's so much easier to take them and it's easier for the vet to work with them too. And so mm-hmm. I think Fear Free is is just amazing. It's making a huge difference in terms of taking the stress out of going to the vet, both for the animals, which is the aim of it, but also that has a knock-on effect for the owner. I think it, it's just fantastic. And uh, very sadly, we lost Bodger recently, but his, his last visits to the vet, he actually, he liked going to the vet. It was a nice social experience for him. And I was so glad that we'd done all of that training and work with him because it made such a difference. I was so sorry to hear of the loss. Thank you. <laughs> I always say like, we just, you know, we can just never get enough time with them. No, dog, dogs just don't live enough. Sadly, Bodger brought a lot of joy to our lives. And, and I'm glad that he's him, him and Ghost are in the book and people get to read about some stories about him. And, and that's nice that I still get to share him with the world that way. It's a wonderful tribute and that they opened this whole, you know, chapter in, in your life as well. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciated very much that you had even inc- included end of life care in the book because kind of until you go through it, you don't always know what, you know, what to expect or, or how to make those those decisions. And I think people sometimes have a lot of, um, you know, either concern about or anxiety that they're making the right decisions or else guilt that, you know, maybe they should have done something differently. And and so I always appreciate and especially having the research behind it also, you know, to help us make the decisions like that. Yeah, I thought it was important to include. I wanted the book to go right through from the very beginning of getting a dog right through to the very end. And I think talking about end of life issues is really hard. It's a really difficult subject. Obviously, losing a dog is an awful thing. But I think if you know something about what kinds of things to think about in terms of quality of life in advance, and if you know something about what to expect right at the very end, I think that's helpful. And that's why I even went to a vet and asked him to talk me through what happens at the very end of a life, um, because I think that's useful information for someone who hasn't been through it before. It's a scary thing to go through as well as emotionally very, very difficult. And I just thought, that's useful for people to be able to read about. And obviously, if it's a difficult time in your life and you don't feel like reading about it, you can skip that chapter and it it doesn't matter at all. But I think for some people, hopefully, they will find it helpful. Um, And it was a bit difficult to write some of the time because, of course, for me, it involved writing about the loss of ghost as well. But um, I think these these are important issues to discuss. 
And one of the things I mentioned in the book is that actually when people lose a dog, it really helps if they have good social support from people. So some people don't really understand what it's like to lose a pet and they don't realize that you've lost a family member. But I think when you do have good support from your friends and your family, it does make a difference. And I would say right now, I'm actually feeling that myself because people have been giving me a lot of support over the loss of Bodger, which is very nice of them. Yes, I'm I'm so glad you have that. I I think that in the last maybe 10 years or so, there's been a lot more sort of widespread understanding around that. I think there was a time when there wasn't quite as much understanding around the loss of a pet. And I, I'm just glad to see, you know, sort of society, it's in the zeitgeist, you know, we're kind of uh, understanding this more and, and able to be, you know, more more supportive as a whole. Yes, I, I think it's really good. And I think it also follows a bit from the extent to which we increasingly think of pets as members of the family. I came across a statistic that 95% of people now think of their dog as part of their family, which I think is is a really positive thing. And I, I think that's also why people are more interested in making their dog happy or doing the right kinds of things to, to make their dog happy. Because they're, they're wanting to treat them as a family member and, and that's a very different kind of life for a dog than being stuck out in the yard all the time on their own. Like people want their dog to be with them and to be doing activities with them a lot of the time. Um, obviously, we all have to go out to work. We'd love to play with our dog all day instead <laughs> and that's not possible. But insofar as it is possible, I think people want to do the best thing that they can for their dog and I think that's a really positive thing, not just for dog welfare but also for the relationship that we have with our dog. And also even for people welfare, because I think it just makes me happier when I'm with my dog. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's so nice. <laughs> I am very fortunate that I um, I can bring my dogs into my office when I, when I need to or whenever I want to. And my boss regularly brings his dog too. And um, I think it just makes everybody, you know, happier. <laughs> That's really nice. I bet everybody's glad to see your dogs and like, wishes you would take them more often probably. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited about this book. I'm so excited for everyone to get this book. It literally covers, like you said, like from, from the time you get your dog up until it's time to say goodbye. And I just really appreciate that and, and that we have the science and the research behind how to help us make those, you know, make all the right decisions and do the right things. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for having me on to talk about WAG, the science of making your dog happy. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you and to hear a bit more about your dogs too. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Zazie Todd, author of WAG, the science of making your dog happy. And I hope that you're as excited as I am about getting the book. I was trying to narrow down what my top five favorite takeaways were for the book, and so I went with sort of a general top five and not like a personal top five because maybe some of mine might not apply in your house, but I knew that these five would apply to everyone. So my first takeaway is how dogs smell the world first. Now, I think we all know, oh, dogs have this great sense of smell. It's so much better than a human's sense of smell. But I really love this quote, and we discussed it in the interview. There are quotes from the work and research of other canine science professionals throughout the book, and this is from Dr. Alexandra Horowitz, author of Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know. And she says, let them sniff. 
Perhaps because we humans are so visually centered, it's hard for us to imagine what it might be like for our primary sensory ability to be olfaction, or smell. But that's how it is for dogs. They sniff first and ask their eyes to confirm or deny. Their world is made up of scents more than sights. As a result, when they agreeably head out with you for a walk, the two of you are experiencing parallel universes. We see what's on the street, the dog smells who is passed by, and who is upcoming in the breeze. And so I thought this was a really important takeaway to remember, that as much as we love our dogs, as much as they get us, and they get our emotions, and they are always there for us no matter what we need, that they're also perceiving the world in a whole different way than we are and that we have no frame of reference for, and that it is important for us to make sure that we're meeting the, the dog's needs in that regard. My second universal takeaway is about getting to know your dog, and what your dog needs, and what your dog prefers, and to remember that there is no one-size-fits-all model for dogs. Some dogs are more fearful, and some are more confident, some are reactive, and some aren't. It's not fair to expect every dog to love every other dog that they encounter, just like we would never expect a person to love every other person that they encounter. And, and so one of the best ways that we can keep our dog happy is to make sure that we are honoring our dog's unique needs or preferences. And number three kind of goes hand in hand with number two, and it's about learning to read our dog's body language. And I've talked about this before in other episodes. If there was one thing I could shout from the rooftops for all dog owners to learn, it would be to learn their dog's body language and how their tuck of their tail or the lick of their lips could be telling you important information that could help you help them feel more happy and comfortable and confident in their world. My fourth takeaway is that dog training is not a one time a week, a one hour a week, external away from your home experience. You are training your dog all the time, whether you know it or not, whether you mean to or not, as I have shared about my silly dog Nino with going outside at night. One of the things I absolutely love about the book is the takeaways at the end of each chapter, which will help you integrate the information into your daily life and your daily routine. I'm also going to share another article in the show notes that Zazie has written for Psychology Today about integrating your dog training into your everyday life. It doesn't have to be this big chore that gets added to your to-do list. It could literally just be keeping some treats by the front door for when the mailman comes and keeping everyone occupied so they don't bark and scare him. Or maybe that's just my house. And my number five takeaway is about the use of food-based rewards for training your dog at home. Now, I feel like this could be a controversial statement. There are a lot of dog trainers who don't agree with food bribing your dog and that that doesn't mean that they're really trained. It just means they're doing what they have to do to get the food. And I will just tell you this, that there's a million different training tools and training techniques, and I don't think anybody using any of them has any intention of negatively harming or hurting a dog. But what I will say is that if you're using something other than food or positive praise for training your dog, that I hope you're doing it under the guidance and supervision and having learned from someone who is thoroughly and properly trained in these techniques. What I think works for just the average dog owner who's trying to work with their dog, whether it's to teach them a new manner around the house, such as not running through the kitchen to get your food until I tell you it's okay, or bringing a new dog home and trying to teach them 
to go outside or where to stand when they have to take a bathroom break. I think working with food-based rewards is probably going to be your easiest and best bet. It's based in science. It's going to make your dog happy. It's going to make you happy that your dog is engaged and excited to keep playing these treat-based games. So that's my non-professional dog training opinion. Just a dog mom who really cares, who wants to do the right thing. And so if this describes you too, now we have the actual science in our hands in this book to back us up. And even if learning about training isn't your thing at all, there's still so many other chapters of this book to help give you clarity, comfort, and confidence in making decisions for your dog at all different stages of their life. I'll include a link in the show note right to the Amazon page so you can make sure to order WAG, The Science of Making Your Dog Happy by Zazie Todd, just in time for it to come out on Tuesday, March 10th. Also put links to the Companion Animal Psychology blog and where you can find Zazie on social media. I'm also going to include a couple links to my favorite articles that Zazie has written, and I'll also include a link to fearfreepets.com where you can find more information about finding a fear-free veterinarian, trainer, or other pet professional near you. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook or at Erin the Dog Mom on Instagram. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.